Well, Albert, I must say that I am pleased that you came out and made my, my preaching time your very first uh, thing of the year. I'm sure you planned that all out. I'd like to think so anyway. But you probably had no idea I was preaching today, did you? Well, it is good to be with you this morning uh, over here in big church, as we like to refer to it in our children's ministry. I always enjoy kind of coming over here and having the opportunity to open up the Word of God with you and to just consider it a real privilege to be able to do this. Although I must confess that I, I do feel a little out of my element over here. I mean, after all, I'm, I'm used to the pre-service buzz of the foosball tables and the, uh, the air hockey machine humming in the background. I'm also used to kids raising their hands in the middle of the sermon, just uh, letting me know that they, they need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I, I'm somewhat used to what I like to refer to as organized chaos. I mean, that's my world. So when I come over here, I have to admit it, it is a little bit, uh, it is a little bit different for me. I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone. So if any time during the sermon I, I just seem to be a, a little edgier than normal, uh, maybe I could just get one or two of you to raise your hand and ask if you could go to the bathroom and maybe that'll just ease me down a little bit. But with that, let's go ahead and open up our time together in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you right now. And Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have to be able to come and to to be able to open up your word. And Father, we do ask right now that you will just help this imperfect messenger to deliver your truths, your perfect truths. Help Christ to be exalted in this service. Help him to be put into his proper place. Lord, help me to speak the words that will stir the hearts of this congregation and help us to be the people that you call us to be. We thank you, Father, for our time together. We hold it up to you and just ask that you will do what only you can do, Father, and that is work in our hearts. We do this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I I know that it has happened to me. Have you ever had something start off really good, I mean great, only to have it end up really bad. I mean, have you ever had something that has taken you to the the very peaks of Mount Everest at one point in time in the beginning, only to have this very same thing bring you down to the depths of Death Valley in the end? I mean, for some of us, it might have been a, a dating relationship that, that began with great promise, but it soon came to a, a crashing end and ended in a pile of ruins. For others of us, it might have been a, a job, a job that looked like it had just a ton of potential. I mean, so much potential. And yet all it did was lead us to a dead end. For others, it might be friendships, marriages, Children, living arrangements, vacations. I mean, the list could go on and on ad infinitum. I mean, without question, we all have things in our lives that have begun well, only to see them finish poorly. I mean, things that at one point in time brought us extreme happiness, but have since left us saddened and oftentimes feeling hurt. But you know, ever since the fall of man, this has been true for us, hasn't it? 
I mean, think back to the time shortly after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the the Garden of Eden. I mean, it was a time in which they started to reproduce and multiply. I mean, try to imagine the awe and the wonder of this first couple as they watched their very first son, Cain, come into this world. Try to feel the emotion of this event and, and the others that would soon follow it. I mean, no doubt there was extreme, enormous potential that was right there. But then couple that. Couple that with the death blow of Cain as he murdered Abel. I mean, one can only imagine the anguish that was brought on by this event. I mean, we live in a, we live in a fallen world. A world in which great sorrow has the potential to flow freely into even the most promising of circumstances, the greatest circumstances around, and yet sorrow can quickly flow into it. We live in a world in which our circumstances seem to, like the tide, ebb and flow, come in and go out. I mean, one minute everything's up, and then the next everything just seems to come crashing down. One minute we, ha- we have our health And then the next minute we're lying on our beds, lying in a hospital bed on our backs, having no idea when we're going to be able to get out. One minute we're being told how invaluable we are to our companies, what an asset we are. And the next minute we're standing in the unemployment line, wondering how in the world are we going to provide? Am I going to provide for my family? One minute our cars are running great. The next minute, they're in the shop needing more work done to them than they're worth. You know, all of these things, they just wreak havoc with us. I mean, they make us feel like one of those whacked out roller coasters at Magic Mountain. You know, the kind that that are so whacked out, they're not even fun. I mean, the time that you, you just, you're just counting the minutes, to, the seconds, so to, to you can just get off so you can touch the ground and kiss it. I mean, as a result, many of us, we find ourselves, we find ourselves worn out and, and, and we're depressed. I mean, like the world, we start to live as, as those who are without hope or, or those that are without any joy. Beloved, this is not how a Christian is called to live. This is not why Christ came into this world, lived a perfect life, suffered and died on the cross, rose on the third day, promising to someday come back very soon in the not-too-distant future. To establish his eternal kingdom, that is not why he came. He didn't do all that so that those who call themselves his followers might walk around living in a state of gloom and doom. And nowhere is this more clearly explained, I think, than in the book of Philippians. For it's here that the Apostle Paul makes clear his joy in an attempt to encourage the Philippians to demonstrate theirs. I mean, Paul is joyful all throughout the letter. In Philippians 1, 3 through 4, he writes, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In Philippians 1, 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all of your, for your progress and joy in the faith. In Philippians 2, 17 through 18, he pens these words. He says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, 
I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. All of these verses, they lead up to the text that we're going to be looking at today. So if you haven't already done so, it's at this time that I want to ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. And we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Listen as I read the Word of God. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There is a key command that is found in our, in our text And we need to make sure that we don't just rush right by it because we're tempted to do that sometimes. But the entire entire rest of the text seems to uh, be built upon this, this part of it. And if you miss this first command, I'm afraid you miss the thrust of of what Paul is attempting to teach this Philippian uh, church, these Philippian believers. This command is in the opening line of verse 1. It says, finally, my brethren, get this, rejoice in the Lord. Now Paul's not simply asking them to rejoice. Hey Philippians, have you got nothing better to do? Just maybe rejoice a little bit. No, he is flat out commanding it. At first glance, this command might seem a little odd. I mean, to some it might seem like an impossible thing to command. I mean, how do you command somebody to rejoice? Or to be joyful. I mean, some might compare it to telling a kid who hates Brussels sprouts that he's not only going to eat those Brussels sprouts, but he's going to eat those Brussels sprouts and he's going to like it. Those of us that are parents can totally relate to that and don't have a problem with a command like that. But anyone who struggles with Paul's commanding believers to rejoice does not have a proper understanding of what it means to rejoice of what true joy really is. Too many people, even in the church, confuse happiness with joy. I mean, happiness is something that can be dictated and controlled by our circumstances, isn't it? I mean, joy, joy isn't though. The world searches and longs after happiness. And you know what? Occasionally it finds it. I mean, we'd be burying our heads in the sand if we said that the world never experiences any happiness. But you know what? They find it, and occasionally they hold it. But apart from Christ, they'll never find joy. They'll never find joy. When Paul speaks of joy, he's talking about more than our moods or our emotions. He's really referring to our need to delight in God. He is calling us to delight, to find our joy in God, to delight in Him. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit and it's something that is to be displayed in the life of all believers everywhere. And yet many Christians, they fail to manifest this joy in their lives. They become so preoccupied with the things of this world that they fail to delight in Christ. And a terrible thing happens. They lose their joy. I mean, I would be willing to say that it's happened to most of us if we were to be honest and vulnerable and open ourselves up and say, yeah, we've lost our joy before. 
I mean, I can remember when I first got saved. Whew. Man, did I delight in God. I was, I was truly joyful. God was my sufficiency. I mean, I loved to read His Word. I loved to spend time in prayer with Him. I loved to be around other believers just so that I could talk to them about what, how good God is. I mean, I was delighting in God. I was full of joy. But you know what? I can also remember a time after my salvation where I, I wasn't delighting in God. A time in which I, I didn't long for His Word. A time in which I, I didn't want to pray. I, I didn't even want to be around other believers because you know what? Quite honestly, they were starting to become a little, a little draining to me. A little too needy. It was a time in which I had, for all intents and purposes, lost my joy. Now, I don't know if those around me ever noticed it. But you know, one thing I do know is I noticed it. And even more importantly from that, God certainly noticed it. I mean, this world that we live in, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to get out there in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation whereby we're to appear as lights in the world. I mean, if we're not careful, we can let our circumstances rob us of the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. I mean, if anyone knew that, it had to be Paul, right? I mean, Paul had to realize how difficult it is and that if you could lose your joy, surely, surely this man could have done it. I mean, on top of writing this letter to the Philippians from a prison, or while he's imprisoned in Rome, Paul had also endured such hardships as being stoned and dragged out of the city of Lystra, left for dead, according to Acts fourteen nineteen through 20. He had been beaten and thrown into a prison cell in Philippi, according to Acts 16, 11 through 40. I mean, he'd been savagely beaten in Jerusalem, according to Acts 21, 27 through 32. And I tell you all this is just the tip of the iceberg. There is many more accounts that I could tell you about what Paul had endured and what he had gone through. You know what? These are not happy things, are they? These are not the types of things that put a smile on your face and make you say, whew, yeah, things are great. And yet, you know what? Paul remains absolutely joyful. Despite his circumstances, Paul manages to keep his eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of his faith, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, Paul gives both the Philippians and us an accurate picture of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. But not wanting to stop there, Paul goes on to offer some practical instructions. Wrapped within the confines of Philippians 3, 1 through 3, are three essential actions for being able to rejoice in the Lord. And when these actions are properly implemented, they will do much to help you delight in our glorious Savior. The first action that is essential to your rejoicing in the Lord is being mindful. Being mindful. Follow along with me as we read the entirety of verse 1. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Ask any teacher, and I'm sure they would be more than happy to tell you, that repetition and reinforcement are essential to a student's learning. 
I mean, if people are to truly learn a subject matter or a particular skill, they must go over it time and time again. These musicians that were up here playing beautifully, that didn't just happen. They didn't just wake up one morning and, oh, I can play the violin. Oh, I can play the piano. I can play the guitar. No, they had to practice. They had to put in a lot of hours, a lot of, a lot of time going over it time and time again. In fact, true mastery does not take place without repetition. When I was in junior high and high school, one of the only smart things that I think I ever did was, was take some typing classes. I mean, I can remember the first few classes where we did nothing but go over the, the location of the home row. And we did this time and time and time again to where we got really comfortable with the home row. And once we got that down, though, we started to venture off of the home row. We started to explore some of the keys right around the home row. Not too far, because we didn't want to freak out or anything. So we just, we just wanted to kind of ease out of the home row area a little bit. You know what? From there, though, we started to type words. And from typing words, we began to type sentences. And then from there, we began to type whole paragraphs. And yet everything that we did in typing class was based on continuous repetition. I mean, how many different keys are there on a keyboard? It's not like, you know, you have unlimited possibilities. It's pretty confined. But because of that repetition, I learned how to type. And I picked up a skill that is still serving me well to this day. And, and this is not a plug for typing class. I don't have any typing teachers that have paid me to come up here and say this. I simply want you to, to, to show you the value of repetition, that it has benefits. And Paul understood this concept. I mean, that's why it wasn't a problem for him to write the same things again, to tell them again what he had told them before. But the question remains, what was it that he was making it a point to rewrite? I mean, did it have to do with the potential dissensions that were within the church? Did it have to do with a a group of quote-unquote Jewish Christians who were known as uh, the Judaizers? Was it simply the call to rejoice? Was that what he was pointing them back to? The fact that, hey, I want you to re- I'm going to tell you to rejoice again? Well, you know what? Quite honestly, commentators are all over the board as to exactly what this phrase is referring back to. But whether it's pointing to the text ahead or looking back to the command to rejoice makes little difference, in my opinion. The concept is the same regardless. We need to be mindful. We need to be reminded. There's a basic need for each of us to be told over and over again the things that we already know. I mean, if you have children, you're all too familiar with this concept. I mean, how many times do you have to tell your children, look, be kind to your brother or sister. Be kind to them. Look, it says right here in God's word, be kind. So be kind. And yet, how many times have you had to discipline your children because they have chosen not to be kind to one another? But you know, children aren't the only ones that, uh, that need repetition, that need to be reminded. I mean, let's bring it back to you. How many times have you read a passage like James one twenty? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
How many times have you forgotten that verse in a fit of selfish rage because you didn't quite get what you wanted? Things didn't quite go the way that you would have liked them to have go. They didn't quite fit into your system. You know what? We're people who need to be reminded. It doesn't matter how many times you've heard the truths of this book, this Bible. You need to hear them again. These truths need to occupy your mind to such a degree that they simply flow out of your life, that they're almost second nature to you. I mean, if we're to rejoice in the Lord, then we must be ever mindful of who Christ is and who we become when we put our faith in Him. You know what? This is something that never changes, right? This is something that is not dependent upon our circumstances, isn't it? I mean, we're told in the Word of God that Christ is the same today as He was yesterday, as He will be tomorrow. Christ doesn't change. So if our joy rests in Christ and Christ never changes, then our joy should never be taken away because it is built into Christ and all that Christ has done for you and for me. I mean, this is a great truth. This is something that we're told in Romans 8, 38 and 39, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is going to be able to separate us from this this work that Christ has done, this love that Christ has poured out on us because it's all of God. It's all about Him. I mean, let your mind dwell on these things if you would. Let your mind be filled with the awe and wonder of who Jesus Christ is and what He has done to restore you with His heavenly Father. Be reminded again and again of all that Christ has done and then, my beloved, rejoice. Rejoice. So having established our need to be mindful, we're now ready to look at the second action that is essential to your rejoicing the Lord, which is being watchful. Being watchful. Let's look at verse 2. It says here, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. You know, it's here that we find the Apostle Paul going after those who were seeking to lead the Philippians astray. I mean, picture Paul, if you would, as this, this mama bear. All right, and his little cub is in danger of being led astray. And so Paul just goes into this attack mode and he just launches into this tirade of stinging accusations against a group that is often referred to as the Judaizers. I mean, in no uncertain terms, Paul makes it perfectly clear to the Philippians that they need to be on guard. The foe that they're up against, the foe that is coming against them, is dangerous. And this foe is capable of doing great harm to them. I mean, in essence, they're a group that is attempting to promote a different gospel. And Paul says, be on guard. The gospel that the Philippians had learned from Paul is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. I mean, it was this great truth that pierced the heart of Martin Luther, wasn't it? And that that later spawned the Reformation... I mean, any attempts to make, at making salvation faith plus is an abomination in the sight of God. 
In his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. The judgment of God is to just come pouring down on him. And this is exactly what the Judaizers were attempting to do. I mean, they were trying to impose their Jewish customs and traditions upon these Gentile believers. They were trying to advocate a different gospel. So Paul says, Philippians, be be on the alert. Beware, Philippians. These guys are bad news. I mean, they're dogs. They're evil workers. They're mutilators. I mean, the terms that Paul uses to describe these Judaizers is is anything but flattery or, or, or cushioned in any way. I mean, they're very sharp, very severe, very harsh. The world would consider it to be very unloving. And yet, you know what? They're words that were meant to help the Philippians to continue to rejoice in the Lord. I mean, Paul calls these Judaizers dogs because this described their character. I mean, don't confuse this label with the domesticated types that we have running around in some of our backyards that you know, like to chase a stick and look at you pathetically for food. Okay, These weren't the types at all. I mean, these were the kind that roamed around in packs. These were the wild dogs, the kind that posed danger to anyone or anything that came up against them. I mean, it's rather ironic that Paul used this term of the Judaizers because, you know what, dogs was a term that was often used by the Jews to describe the Gentiles. In fact, Christ himself often referred to the Gentiles as dogs. And really that label was meant to show how the Gentiles were unclean. They were unholy. They were outside of the covenantal promises of God. They were dogs. But you know what? A rather interesting turn of events, but because of Christ, it's now these Judaizers who were the dogs. I mean, they were the ones who were on the outside looking in. They were the the outcasts. They were the scavengers. They were the unholy. Quite a turn of events here. And Paul goes on to call these Judaizers evil workers. And he called them this because this depicted their conduct. This was a group that worked hard to promote their false gospel. They didn't just sit around and wait for people to come to them. They went out looking for people. They went around creating schisms and splits within the body of Christ. They looked for ways in which they could infiltrate and win converts to their system. They sought to lead as many people astray as they could. And they weren't concerned with leading people to Christ, although I'm sure if you would have asked them, they would have said, oh yes, we want to see as many people come to Christ as possible. But you know what? That didn't back up what they did. All they cared about was adding numbers to their camp. They were just like the hypocritical Pharisees that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 23, 15, who traveled around on the sea and the land just to make one proselyte, one convert. They would go to great lengths to keep adding to their camp, their numbers, because it was all about them. 
It was all about their numbers being bolstered up and built up. Had nothing to do with Christ. The third and final name that Paul calls these Judaizers is the false circumcision or mutilators because this defined their creed. Using the Greek language in a way that we can not see in the English, Paul makes a little play on words, and I don't normally like to bring up the Greek language. Kids have a hard time tracking with it for the most part, but I figure you guys might be able to follow with me here a little bit. The word that he uses, the word for circumcision in the Greek is paratome. Paratome. And that means to cut around. But Paul wanted to make something very clear. He wanted to make sure. He didn't want to confuse. He didn't want to associate associate what these Judaizers were doing with circumcision, the real circumcision. So Paul does a little handiwork and he uses the word katatome. Katatome, which means to cut to pieces or to put it another way, to mutilate. Circumcision was one of the customs that these Judaizers were attempting to force upon the Gentile believers. In essence, they were saying that if you really wanted to be saved, I mean, if you really want to be in Christ, you need to trust in Christ and plus you need to be circumcised. You need to be like us because after all, the Jews, we are God's chosen people. And if you're going to come into that, you need to follow our customs. You need to do what we do. I mean, you could almost hear Paul shouting, No! That is not true! I mean, circumcision was a sign of a man's faith, but it was in the past. That's no longer the case on this side of the cross. That's not what God has set up on this side of the cross. I mean, Colossians 2, 10 through 11, Paul writes this. He says, And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised, get this, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. To impose circumcision upon the Gentile believers was not circumcision at all. It was mutilation. It was katatome because it did nothing to improve that person's standing with God. God had no longer commanded it of his people. And so these Judaizers were trying and they were attempting to force uh, these Gentile believers to come under their system. When a person places their faith in the work of Jesus Christ, there is no longer the need for an external mark on the body because God puts an internal mark on the heart. I mean, it's a supernatural work that cannot be performed by human hands because it is of God. I mean, anybody can perform a a circumcision of the flesh, but only God can perform a circumcision of the heart. It is a godly work, and that is why the external bodily mark is no longer required because God is working internally in our hearts, circumcising our hearts, changing us. You know, Paul's warnings need to shout as loud today as they did back then. While the Judaizers may not be the force that they once were, their kind is still alive and well, I assure you of that. 
there are still those who would want to impose their standards upon us. I'd say that the Judaizers have been replaced with a group that we'll call the the legalists. I mean, those who want to thrust their man-made standards or personal convictions upon us. Those who would want us to believe that there is something more to our being put into a right standing with God than faith alone, a faith plus type of a system. I assure you that nothing will zap your joy away quicker than putting yourself under legalism's heavy load. Nothing will make you forget the day when Jesus came into your life and removed the burdens that you had once had to bear faster than legalism. It is a heavy weight and it is an unnecessary weight for the believer. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the distorters. I mean, if you're to rejoice in the Lord, then you must be on guard. You must let the word of God speak for itself and guard against those who would attempt to teach anything contrary to that which is found in this book. Well, thus far in our endeavor, we've we've been able to adhere to the Apostle Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord. We've seen the importance of being mindful and also of being watchful, which means we're now ready to look at the third action that is essential to your rejoicing in the Lord, which is being truthful. Being truthful. Follow along as we look at verse 3. It says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. I mean, it's here that Paul lets us know the makeup of a true believer. Because only a true believer is able to rejoice in the Lord. I mean, having just revealed the counterfeit faith of the Judaizers, Paul seeks to reveal the character of those who have been circumcised in the heart. And you know what? As we're going to see, it is a completely different picture. It is radically different from that of the Judaizers. He begins by stating that true believers worship in the Spirit of God. Now, what Paul means here is that there is a true devotion to God. This devotion goes much deeper and much farther than just showing up to church every Sunday. I mean, the church is full of people who show up on Sunday. And yet it pains me to say that the church is not full of those who worship in the Spirit of God. There are too many people in the church today who come not out of joy but out of duty they don't really love God they don't live for him he means nothing to them the rest of the week they don't do anything to know him more except show up every Sunday but true believers true believers have a God-given desire to know God and a God-given desire to, to serve God. If God's Spirit is residing in you, then you should hunger to know God. You should have a passion for that. There should be days in which you're just bursting, wanting to just sing out and praise God. I mean, there should be days in which you're just overwhelmed with gratitude at all that God has done in your life over His grace and His mercy that He has poured out upon you. 
True believers love God. And because they love God, they seek to walk in obedience to His will. I mean, in John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. You will do what I ask you to do. What I tell you to do, you will do it. Beloved, can I ask you some tough questions? I mean, do you love God? Do you seek to keep His commandments? Are His commandments burdensome to you? Or do you delight in them? Do you live in the presence of God every day? These are difficult questions. And yet, they're questions that must be asked. They're they're questions that are essential to your rejoicing in the Lord because they are questions that will determine where you're going to be spending eternity. I mean, joy awaits those who worship in the Spirit of God. Joy awaits those who have received the Spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, according to Romans 8.15. Paul goes on to... Continue to define a true believer by stating that a true believer glories in Christ Jesus. Another way of saying this might be that a true believer is a person who boasts in Christ. I mean, a true believer is proud to be associated with Jesus Christ. I mean, he doesn't back down or cower at the thought of proclaiming Christ. Can I ask you some more tough questions? What are some of us afraid of? I mean, what, what are we afraid of? Why are some of us so timid when it comes to proclaiming Christ? I mean, do we think that other people have better answers than we do to the tough questions? I mean, if you think that's the case, then let me challenge you. Ask them. Ask them how they think the world came into existence. Ask them to tell you what will happen to them when they die. I'll tell you what, you'll find out soon enough when you ask them those questions that they haven't got a clue. And if they do give you an answer, if you think what we believe is whacked out, listen to some of their responses. I mean, what are we afraid of? They don't, have, they don't have what we have. You and I have God's truth. I mean, we have the Bible, the very Word of God, and it's this book right here that tells us how the world came into existence. It's this book right here that, that tells us what happens to us when we die. It's this book right here that tells us what we deserve. And praise be to God, It's this book that tells us how we can get what we don't deserve. But you know what? I mean, to the world, the story of grace, the story of the cross is complete foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us so. I mean, it says, For the word of, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I mean, the true believer, the one who has been saved from his, from his sin, despite what the world 
around him may think, boasts in Jesus Christ. And he boasts in Jesus Christ because he realizes that his salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast, but instead it is all by grace. It is a gift from God. We have nothing in and of ourselves to boast of. It's all of God. The true believer understands the enormous gift that he has received and he wants to share that gift with as many people as who will listen to him. I mean, he rejoices at the great burden that has been removed from from his back and he seeks to, to tell others that are burdened and bogged down with the cares and the worries of this world how they can lose their burden. I mean, despite what others may say or think, we have some good news. We have some great news. And as a result, God is calling us to boast in His Son. He's calling us to talk about Christ with as many people as we can. So this week, let me issue a challenge to you. Let me ask you to ask God to give you the courage to boast about Christ to some of the unsaved people that you're going to come in contact with. Ask God to give you the courage to boast in His Son so that we might pass along the good news. There is joy in proclaiming Christ. As we tell others about God's goodness, as we tell others about God's grace, you know what it does? It helps us to remember. It helps us to remember how great a salvation we have. It helps us to remember where we once were and where Christ has pulled us out of. A final defining quality of a true believer is that, according to Paul, he puts no confidence in the flesh. He puts no confidence in the flesh. This is a point which, I hate to say, many people seem to stumble. I mean, it's here that many get tripped up and and thus they fail to come to that place of total dependence on Christ. I mean, for some of you, you come from a long line of Christian believers. Your mother's 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 mother, mother was a believer. And it just went on from generation to generation. You come from a a rich heritage. Others of you have gone to or are going to a fine Christian college. You're being taught great truths. You're being exposed to great doctrine. Others of you have grown up in the church. I mean, you've been in the church your whole life. You've heard all the stories. You know all the stories. Nothing's new. You know it grown up in it. Still others of you are actively involved in the church. I mean, you're actually involved. You're serving. You're doing something. But may I remind you that these things, these things do not save you. May I be so bold as to tell you that you may have experienced each and every one of these privileges and yet still still not be saved. For each of these things, to one degree or another, is fleshly. I mean, they're of man. I mean, if your confidence is in them, 
then let me assure you, your confidence is misplaced. It's great that you come from a Christian family. It's great that you've gone to a Bible college that is sound and solid. It's great that you've grown up in the church. Those things are wonderful. It's great that you're serving. But those things will not save you. It is the grace and work of Christ that reconciles us to God. It is our faith in Christ that allows each of us to be put back into a right standing with our Heavenly Father. Our families can't save us. Our schools can't save us. Not even Calvary Bible Church and your attendance here can save you. I mean, each of those are simply means that lead to the end, which is Jesus Christ. I mean, He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Salvation is found in none other. John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. A true believer understands this and thus he puts absolutely no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. Beloved, we need to be completely and utterly dependent on Christ. If we're not, we're not true believers because it's in Christ that we're saved. It's in Christ that we're sanctified. It's in Christ that we're redeemed. It's in Christ that we're justified. It's in Christ that we will be glorified. You and I are to have absolutely no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, the great apostle Paul said this. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the apostle Paul. I mean, if anybody had a right to boast in the flesh, it was this guy. But he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To trust in ourselves, our own abilities, our own intelligence, our own resolve, our own goodness is one of the greatest dangers to all of mankind. A true believer understands that and he brings nothing to the table. He doesn't fool himself into thinking that he has anything to offer. Apart from Christ, he realizes that he's lost and he's absolutely without any hope whatsoever. But our society would want to tell us that man is basically good. That the world is full of great humanitarians. And under the right conditions, the right circumstances, things would be great. In essence, they want to tell us that God would be unjustified to send a man to hell. Let me tell you that this is a lie that is straight from the pit of hell. And you and I must flee from it as fast as we can. We must never, never entertain the idea that there is something inherently good in us that warrants our salvation. I mean, if we do that, that's putting confidence in the flesh. It's a characteristic that does not belong to the true believer. In this life that we live here on this earth, there are many highs and lows, aren't there? 
many things that start off well only to end up poorly. We see it all around us. Broken marriages, broken friendships, broken dreams, broken promises. It's the nature of the world that we live in. It's how things are. But for the Christian, this world is not our home. We have a different home. We have a residence in heaven. And it's there. It's there that the true believer longs to be. It's there that we find true contentment. But until we get there, until God calls us home or until that day when He returns again, we must find joy in the journey. And as we've learned this morning from the Apostle Paul, there are three essential actions that we must take if we are to rejoice in the Lord. We must be mindful. We must be watchful. And we must be truthful. May God help each of us to put these three actions into practice such that Christ might be exalted. That Christ would alone would be given preeminence. So that Christ alone would be the glory and the joy of of every one of us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I do just pray for each of us that our joy would be found in none other than Christ. That Lord, we would, we would delight in him and Father, we would, not, not, we would want nothing more than to see him exalted and glorified in his proper, proper place. So Father, help us. Allow your spirit to stir in our hearts so that we, we might be ever mindful, that we might remember whose we are, that we might remember where we came from, and we might remember the incredible price that was paid for us. Help us to be watchful. Help us to guard our doctrine. Help us to not fall prey to the, the legalists, the Judaizers of our day. And Father, help us to be truthful when it comes to our own salvation. Allow each of us to search our own hearts. Allow each of us to see where our boasting is in, where our confidence lies. Father, I pray that it would be in Christ. I thank you for every person that you have brought here this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to take these truths so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.